HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. several years ago, and uh, about 2007, uh, but to preface that, basically we were one of the first pasture-raised certified organic egg operations to uh, commercially produce eggs for a national retailer, which was Whole Foods. Uh, we still produce eggs for them um, throughout the southeast, uh, sorry, the southwest region, which is Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Arkansas. Um, all our eggs are pasture-raised, so they get to live outside. Um, be in the sunshine, get exercise, eat the grass and the bugs, and, and work our soil. Uh, but basically what happened was we were shipping in feed from the Midwest, and it was really cost prohibitive, and um, we are having a hard time, one, with supply, I mean, because there's other issues, you know, that came up from time to time, specifically in the winter. Um, but what we really found out was that we needed a consistent supply of feed, and so ultimately we opened up a small organic feed milk to service our 5,000 hens at that time. Um, and so in about 2007, that's when we launched the feed mill. About two years later, we expanded uh, to facilitate uh, commercial production and sell to the general public. And then finally, we expanded again in 2011. And then finally, again this year, to increase our product diversity and um, kind of satisfy a few other market uh, demands. And so, 
long story short, that's how we got started, and you know, it's been it's been a, an exciting ride. Um, we work with so many small family farms, so many small um, egg producers and broiler producers, dairy, everything. Uh, you know, these products are going to your your local grocery stores. They're going to the farmers markets. Um, this is all money that recirculates into our community, pays taxes, employs people, and you know, really, the multiplier effect is just phenomenal. And um, ultimately, we have a more secure uh, food system in the Texas region as a as a result of you know the organic feed mill just existing. Man, not only are you a good feed maker, you're a good talker. So huh. let's talk a little bit about the logistics of your everyday world. How do you evaluate the demand? How do you how are your relationships with your growers like? What comes in and what goes out, and what does it look like on the ground in terms of all these silos mixing all these things around? Yeah, you know, as we've as we've grown, we've been presented with several new challenges, um, exciting challenges. But really, what it comes down to is is really producing, trying to produce the best product available. Um, and that means, you know, no pesticides, no herbicides, uh, no fillers, no byproducts, no petroleum-based products, no pharmaceuticals. You know, basically what it comes down is to impeccable and specific nutrition for each species. And we do that through um, a balanced approach in terms of pricing and uh, just overall nutrition. Um, each ingredient is evaluated for its performance, and we do a lot of testing on it on all our ingredients, whether that be nutritional, toxins, um, GMOs, et cetera. So there's a lot of testing and a lot of evaluation that each product goes through to ensure that it's going to be, you know, as, as productive as possible for our, for our customers from the mill. Um, basically, you know, we work with the grain farmers directly. We do have, um, you know, I guess over the last seven years, we've increased organic um, acreage in terms of crop production by about 8,000 acres. And next year, we are projected to increase that by up to another 40,000 acres, and that's going to be in the southern United States. Um, our long-term goal is, again, to support small family farms, uh, to get all these, you know, 20, 30, 40-acre farms that, you know, Big Ag has kind of brushed to the side and, and didn't really deem necessary Um or effective in feeding the world or feeding our nation or our local communities. Uh, basically, what we're trying to do is give those farmers an opportunity to get back into it, make an income, support their families, and then have a more secure food future for um, for their local communities. Uh, you know, on the organic side, it's it's been really challenging, and um, there hasn't been a lot of programs out there to date to support organics from the, you know, from the USDA, for that matter. However, Tom Vilsack has recently, and uh, Catherine, Kathleen Merrigan have really um, hunkered down and started working on a couple programs to help support the organic producers. But with that said, is that there's a big lag in terms of production. So, you know, our easiest way to, to mitigate some of those production pitfalls is, is supporting the small family farms. You know, we only have a few producers that may have a thousand acres or more. The majority of our producers are somewhere in the ballpark of forty acres to one hundred and twenty acres, um, and that's you know that that's a lot of there's a lot of farmland out there like that that's just sitting vacant. So, you know, we have a lot of communication. Email email's huge. Um, 
you know, I still have farmers that are 60, 70 years old that I'll actually um, use my online uh, fax service to kind of act as an email because we'll communicate through fax, uh, which is interesting. And um, it's just really a lot of coordination. You know, we have to we have to coordinate with with the farmers that are raising the eggs and the the chickens, turkeys, and whatnot. And then we also have to coordinate with the the producers, you know, the grain producers, years in advance to make sure that our supply is going to meet the demand of uh, the production capacity at the mill. And then explain a little bit your facility. What does it look like? Like what's happening kind of on the ground, the ins and the outs? Yeah, on the ground, we have a 90-acre farm in Elgin, Texas, which is 20 miles east of Austin. Um, we are kind of on the verge of the Blackland Prairie, um, wonderful farmland that's unfortunately in some ways getting paved over by development, but, but still there is a lot of farmland out there. Our farm is, uh, we do have a, a higher clay content in our soil, and it's a big open pasture. We have about 60 of that, those acres, just open grasslands. Right now there's a lot of clover. Uh, and you can see a lot of our spring grasses starting to come in. It's really lush. Um, this is a, my favorite time of the year, seeing those grasses come in. Um, it's just all native pasture. And we have 20, I want to say 26 or 27 poultry houses that are all mobile. Um, each house will have between four and 500 chickens. Uh, each house is also basically takes the footprint of about half to three-fourths of an acre. And each one of those houses is moved on a weekly basis. Um, so basically, we distribute the chicken manure and uh, the soil inputs on each piece of land, uh, each little parcel where the chicken house is, and um, those houses get rotated throughout the year. So hopefully, each spot will have you know the house be, uh, a chicken house be on it maybe twice a year. So that way, the manure and all the nutrients can actually start feeding the soil biology. And so, you know, it's a, kind of a closed system. And ideally, you know, we um, we feed the chickens. The cattle are grass-fed. We have sheep, lambs, llamas, dogs. Um, and every every species inputs a different, you know, nutrient composition into the soil. And all, they, all, they all have their own attributes in, into, you know, benefiting the soil diversity and the biology. And so we have, you know, about 17,000 chickens out there right now. Uh, we are hoping to increase that number. And at the top of our property, at the highest point, we have our feed mill, uh, which sits on about two acres. And from there, we produce, you know, about 250 to 300 tons a week for all the local producers um, in, in Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and then sometimes a little bit further east. So it's really right now is a it's a wonderful time to be out there. It's a little chilly today, but, you know, it's really nice this time of year to see all those grasses come in and everything just rebound so quickly with just a little bit of rain. Well, and the thing that may not be so obvious um, to all our listeners, but I think it's worth mentioning as we think about the next, you know, 20, you have 20 or 30 years left to be coordinating things and growing your operation. It sounds like you guys are interested in looking at mills and other locations around the south to support the growth of pastured, uh, pastured animal operations is one of the major, major crises, un, 
un um, unsung, but is we have been spraying so much glyphosate on the ground and disrupting the soil ecology mm-hmm. in pretty fundamental and devastating ways. Really good work on this being done by Dr. Huber, um, who's a plant pathologist and he worked for a long time for the U.S. government and who has sounded the alarm on basically the destruction of soil life. And when we think about the solution to that uh, problem, the answer is animals. The answer is animals back on the land, re-inoculating the land, um, as it were, metaphorically. That's not a scientific inoculant I mean. It is a metaphorical inoculation. Um, but basically re- reinserting the forces of life and the chemistry between the poop and the soil. And so you guys are really an enabling factor for that to happen. Any thoughts? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a great point. Um, glyphosate is is hands down really one of the most harmful chemicals that you can you can purchase um, almost at any grocery store, hardware store, chemical ag store, whatever you want to call it, um, and feed store. It, it's a strong metal chelator, and basically what that means is that it, it binds up the nutrients in the soil. And, and so basically it's an opportunistic herbicide. And so it binds the nutrients in the soil, and once it binds the nutrients and, and locks them up, the weeds that aren't necessarily glyphosate-resistant at this time, although we're seeing um, glyphosate-resistant weeds becoming more of an issue... But basically what happens is it, it those weeds or the plants can't take up those nutrients in the soil, so they're more susceptible to disease and viruses and, and everything else. So that's how that actually kills the the, the plants. Um, and so just basic common sense tells you or could tell anybody that, well, you're using a chemical to bind up the nutrients in the soil, so what do you have to do in turn? You have to in turn buy chemical fertilizers to put on the soil so that the plants that are glyphosate resistant can actually get, you know, some nutrients. You have to do foliar feeds and, and a few other things. So it's really, it's an interesting dynamic. I love, I love the thought process between, uh, by, you know, these chemical companies that basically create a problem and their solution is to create another problem and then ultimately profit off of it and continually go down this, this long spiral. Um, as for the pasture, the way to, to to mitigate these problems is one: stop using glyphosate, stop using these chemical petroleum-based products that are really binding up the nutrients in the soil, eroding our soils. Um, you know, you're having all these. Basically, they attribute to the dead zones in the in the oceans are created by all these chemicals, and it's and it's terrible. Uh, but the best soil inputs that you can have again, comes down to just a proper pasture rotation. Um, there's a lot of people out there doing this. They're extremely successful at it. You know, a chicken will produce one-tenth of a pound of nitrogen per month. Um, so if you multiply that by just on our farm, um, that's 17,000 chickens a month. That's, that's a lot of nitrogen that we're naturally putting back into the soil, feeding the biology. Um, you know, one person I really look up to a lot when it comes to uh, pasture management is Alan Savory. He had a wonderful TED Talk. I don't know when it was, but it was uh, I saw it a few months ago, maybe even a year. 
and how how basically you know the Great Plains were were established, the grasslands were established by roaming buffalo, by grazing. Um, you, you don't want your grasses to oxify or uh, basically fall over and, and die. You, 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 any grasses that you produce on your land, you really want some type of livestock consuming it, so that way it promotes the growth, but it also inputs nutrients back in the soil, so the, the livestock are, are basically fertilizing your land. Um, so those two really go hand in hand. Um, the problem can be seen as glyphosate, but also a lot of other chemical inputs that are so cheap and seemingly easy to use and affordable, but in reality, all we're doing is killing the topsoil, and that one inch of topsoil is is really uh, one of the most important things to sustain life. Uh, it's just a practice that really can't go on much longer. So, while many of your everyday jobs may be mundane, sewing up paper bags full of grain and dealing with dealing with egg-laying customers, feathered mm-hmm. and otherwise. The, the kind of meta-narrative of this work is really about reviving the basic institution of mankind. How does it feel yeah. to be doing such a big job? Well, that, it's, it's, a, it's a big task, but we like to break it up in little pieces. Um, you know, it, it doesn't start with one person, and it doesn't necessarily start... Um, with one farm, it's it's just a collective consciousness that there's something wrong with our environment and there's something wrong with our food system. Um, and so what I really enjoy about, you know, running the farm and the feed mill is, is primarily having the conversations and, and rekindling the culture and, the and, you know, this farming heritage that we've had um, has kind of turned a, an eye to or turned a blind eye to in, in our country. Um and, you know, it's, it's really, it's one of the biggest pieces that's, I think, missing from our society is having that conversation about food again, uh, having that be, you know, a social experience, but also, you know, the pride associated with producing a product. There's just so much um, that I think just the general, general um, oh, I don't know, average American consumer is, is really kind of, and distracted or forgotten about in terms of uh, the importance of, you know, these small family communities, uh, this type of, you know, agriculture. Um, they all really support our society as a whole, and, it, and it's really, you can kind of feel it. You can kind of see it. I've traveled a lot across the United States, and there's places you go, and it's nothing but, you know, strip malls and fast food restaurants. You don't know where that food comes from, and, you know, obviously the people working there don't either. Um and so you you become disconnected from these types of things, and and it's really important um, as a social component that we we are connected to our food because it's our food that gives us the strength to do what we need to do, uh, keeps us healthy, and you know makes us strong and and capable of you know accomplishing so many different things. So I mean, really, uh, my biggest thing is you know I love the conversations with the farmers. The grocery stores, the restaurants, um, you know, when when these people get to, you know, try these products, whether it be our eggs, our chicken, or um, whether it's our livestock feed for, for their livestock, or even, you know, another vegetable producer down the road, whether it's their vegetables or fruit, you know, you can't find those things at your regular old 
um, grocery store. I mean, you're not going to find the quality. And so, all in all, it's 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 a social issue. It's a um, and it's a great way to just reconnect the community, get people interested and involved, and in, you know what's what's happening just right in front of them. And um, that's that's the most optimistic thing about you know being on this on the sustainable ag front. Uh, it's the community and and it's the just the communication. It plays such a huge role in it. Wow! Really, I'm so impressed. I'm so impressed by your facility, which we filmed for Our Land, and by mm-hmm. your really great context. Um, you know, I think the revival of a producer culture is a, almost a prerequisite to building an economy that can actually sustain us um, and serve us. And you're doing a great part. You're doing a great service to that producer culture as well as to the feedstock, um, not in the metaphoric sense, but in a real, very real sense of the movement, um, I wanted to make sure that you didn't have any announcements or events that you wanted to put out in the world, because then I have a couple. Yeah, yeah um, you know, we're, we're working very rapidly to um, to support the farmers in across the South, so we are um, hopefully going to be opening up our Georgia Organic Feed Mill and Farm uh, later this year uh, to basically give a market for for the organic and prospective organic grain producers over there. Um, a feed mill is an integral part of a production system. And so without the feed mill, basically you have grain producers that don't have a market for their grains. And then you have a void in terms of a product, you know, farmers, egg producers, broiler producers that are looking for a certain product like certified organic feed that can't find it. And so, you know, we've been working on this project for about three years, and, and we have had a lot of support. And ultimately what we're trying to do is just make um, local organic feeds accessible to the public so that way they can produce product uh, for their local farmers' markets and grocery stores and, and ultimately um, bring on more farmers. That's what that's really what we're lacking in some sense is, is new farmers. And um, we are definitely happy to support that in whatever way we can. So get in touch if you're a Georgia poultry producer or if you're a Georgia grain grower or if you're a low-money funder person who wants to get involved in the ground floor of an awesome new feed mill. And thank you, Cameron, so much for your service and for your work. And thank you yes. to the audience. I have two tiny events to announce. Well, not that tiny. This weekend I'm giving a talk about the future of the Grange and the history of the Grange. It's a project called Grange Future, which I've been working on with Ripley and Dan Griffith in Greenhorn's World for a while, so it's a little slideshow about Grange revivals going on all around the country and how the Grange is just a really logical scaffold, a really logical syllabus for community-scale action, resisting monopoly, supporting cooperation, building businesses. That's Grange Future. Uh, this weekend, Friday night at Shed in Healdsburg, which is a kind of fancy local food joint that has amazing charcuterie, among other things. And the other thing is on April 26th and 27th, we have a big symposium called Our Land. It's a symposium about land reform, land access, land transfer. Pretty big deal. Podcast will be recorded. Thank you so much to our co-sponsors, Chelsea Green, Roots of Change, 
Schumacher Center for New Economics, and a few others for making that happen. Again, that's Our Land, a symposium on land reform, land transfer, land access. It's a project of the Agrarian Trust. Okay, people, talk to you next week. Thank you so much, Cameron. Yeah, thank you, Severin. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 